I want to thank the OJs for that fine piece of bumper music because in this segment we're going to talk mostly about money and some of the crazy things that it makes people do. Or perhaps more properly about the bad decisions that come out of the pursuit of money. Let's start with this item. Uber is an up-and-coming company that's interested in making a buck. But uh, however you may feel about this uh, ride-sharing company or however you would describe it, uh, Uh, private entrepreneurs taking on the role of taxi drivers, you have to wonder about who's running the ship. Because, as you may have heard, uh, a senior executive at Uber this week suggested that the company should consider hiring a team of opposition researchers to dig up dirt on its critics in the media, and specifically to spread details of the personal life of a female journalist who had criticized the company. Evidently, the Uber executive, Emil Michael, made the comments in a conversation he later said he believed was off the record. Yeah, I guess so. But they're clearly doing some effective damage control. Apparently, in a statement through Uber last Monday, Emil Michael said he regretted that statement and that that those statements didn't reflect his or the company's views. So I guess, you know, his viewpoint is, yeah, I know I said it, but it doesn't actually reflect my views. It was feed that his remarks came as Uber sought to improve its relationship with the media. Well, that's, that's bound to help. Here's the part I like best. And the image of its management team, who have been cast as insensitive and hyper-aggressive, even as the company's business and cultural reach have boomed. By the way, this guy, by Michael, he apparently also sits on a board that advises the Defense Department. Yeah, but I guess since he's only an advisor, he can't send in a SEAL Team 6 to take out the journalists. Apparently at a dinner, Michael outlined the notion of spending, quote, a million dollars, unquote, to hire four top opposition researchers and four journalists. That team, he said, could help Uber fight back against the press. They'd look into your, quote, into your personal lives, your families, unquote, and give the media a taste of its own medicine. Apparently at this dinner, when someone suggested that a plan like the one that uh, was being floated could be a problem for Uber, Michael responded, nobody would know it was us. Well, we think an awful lot of that sort of stuff is going on, and when it does, attention should be called to it. And by the way, I'm not going to be using the Uber service, I think, in the immediate future, and maybe indefinitely. And we note a piece in the New York Times, David Gellis, reprinted in the B, noting that big mergers are back in business on Wall Street. Noted the Gellis piece, mergers worth $100 billion made last Monday, put Wall Street on pace for a year of deal-making rivaling those during the dot-com bubble and the private equity upsurge just before the financial crisis. Sure, what could possibly go wrong? Among the players here, apparently, uh, Allergan has reached a friendly deal to be acquired by Activa in a deal valued at $66 billion. Comcast proposed $45 billion takeover of Time Warner Cable is under scrutiny by antitrust officials. Hmm, what a concept. Cigarette manufacturers are getting involved in this. Reynolds America is seeking to buy Lorillard for $27 billion. And as reported on this program, last August, Burger King announced that it would buy the Canadian donut chain Tim Hortons in what critics called an example of tax inversions meant to dodge U.S. taxes. Of course, I like this idea. I own and operate a medical clinic. Maybe I can buy some clinic down in Tijuana. Claim that the actual corporate headquarters is south of the border and see if I can avoid paying taxes. I need to look into this. 
Now, you know, it's true that you can make more money sometimes with these mergers and acquisitions. Certainly the guys that engineer the deals come away with a, a fat payday. But is not the public ill-served by oligopolies? Well, of course they are. We do hope that antitrust officials will step up and pay attention and maybe do their job once in a while. And of course, there is a rising chorus in this country criticizing what the 1% has been up to. And I don't know that they're actually engineering these mergers because it's probably more like the top 0.01%. The Economist magazine certainly made that case earlier this month. To quote from the free exchange column, Among the most controversial of Thomas Piketty's arguments in his best-selling analysis of inequality, capital in the 21st century, is that wealth is increasingly concentrated in the hands of the very rich. Rising wealth inequality could presage in a return of an 18th century inheritance society, in which marrying an heir is a surer route to riches than starting a company. Some critics have questioned Piketty's premise, but a new paper suggests that in America, at least, inequality in wealth is approaching record levels. Evidently, a new paper by Emmanuel Sayers and Gabriel Zuckman of the London School of Economics reckons that past estimates of wealth badly underestimated the share of wealth belonging to the very rich. They used a richer variety of sources than prior studies, including detailed data on personal income taxes, which the authors mined for figures on capital income and property tax. The authors noted that not every potential source of error can be accounted for. Tax avoidance strategies, for instance, could cause either an overestimation of the wealth share of the rich or an underestimation. But the authors believe their estimates represented an improvement over past attempts. Noted the economist, the results are enough to make Mr. Piketty blush. The authors examined the share of wealth held by the bottom 90% of families relative to those at the very top. In the 1920s, the bottom 90% held just 16% of America's wealth, considerably less than that held by the top 0.1%, which controlled a quarter of the total wealth before the crash of 29. But from the beginning of the Depression till the end of the Second World War, the middle class's share of total wealth rose steadily. By the early 1980s, the share of household wealth held by the middle class, which they're describing as that 90%, rose to 36%, four times the share controlled by the top 0.1%. From the early 80s on, however, these trends have reversed. At this point, the 16,000 families making up the richest 0.01%, with an average net worth of $371 million, now control 11.2% of our total wealth, which is back to the 1916 share. Meanwhile, the share of wealth held by families from the 90th to 99th percentile has actually fallen over the last decade, though not by as much as the net worth of the bottom 90%. So it looks as though people who are decrying the uh, decline and perhaps eventual loss of the middle class are not wrong. And how about this to illustrate uh, some of the strangeness of the people at the very top? The Week excerpted a piece from the Bloomberg Business Week uh, magazine on the prices of modern art. The article referred to a night at the Christie's Auction House in New York. The night was November 12th, 2013. By the end of that night, the auction at the Rockefeller Center would make history many times over. The magazine notes that as the auctioneer's hammer fell on lot after lot, the figures posted on the screen behind him were as eye-popping as the works on display. A Francis Bacon triptych set an auction record for any artwork that came in at $142.4 million.
I think Groucho Marx might add, that certainly redefines bringing home the bacon. A sculpture by Jeff Koons titled Balloon Dog came in at $58.4 million, setting a high mark for a living artist. An Andy Warhol picture of a Coca-Cola bottle, $57.3 million. The overall take that night, $692 million at the time, the single biggest sale of art ever. The article went on to chronicle a piece called Apocalypse Now from artist Christopher Wood, which 25 or so years ago had sold for something like $100,000. Well, that night at Christie's, it wound up going for $26.4 million. The piece notes that contemporary art sales at auction shot up 33% last year and 1,078% over the past decade. The night that uh, Apocalypse Now, which is really just black letters on a seven-foot white background spelling out in caps a line from Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, to wit, sell the house, sell the car, sell the kids, which I guess works out to almost a million dollars a letter. Well, that that price got up there because there was a bidding war going on between uh, billionaires. There was J. Tomlinson Hill, vice chairman at the Blackstone Group, the world's largest private equity firm. And on the other side of the dealer, a hedge fund manager, Dan Loeb. I guess if you, you know, value something by what you paid for it, these guys can always later have bragging rights and saying, look at that, $26 million painting over there. What do you think of that? But is this why we're keeping uh, the minimum wage down? So that the horses asses that run these companies can buy art at that kind of inflated price? One has to wonder. Bloomberg noted that this boom has made single works more expensive than the market values of more than 800 members of the NASDAQ Composite Index. The $142 million spent on the Bacon Triptych at Christie's could have funded India's entire Mars orbiter mission twice over. And uh, Kuhn's Balloon Dog, which, by the way, was a 10-foot-tall stainless steel rendition of a children's party favor, went for roughly the same amount as what the White House recently requested to develop an Ebola vaccine. In the wake of all this, an art advisor, Thea Westrich, was quoted as saying, if you're looking for something rational in the art market, go fishing or do something else instead. And we should note, and we should note relative to this uh, art mania, that according to the New York Times, since 2009, the U.S. economy has grown by 12%, corporate profits, 46%, and the broad stock market, 92%. But median household income is actually contracted by 3%. Although the Wall Street Journal has noted that we've had 49 straight months of U.S. job growth, Derek Thomas in TheAtlantic.com noted that uh, the problem is that we're adding a lot of jobs in industries with stagnant wages and very few jobs in those with rising pay. Now let's take a plunge into some truly odious economics. On the subject of fake malaria medications, the new scientist weighed in last month. Epidemiologist Paul Newton answered the question of how big a problem are fake anti-malarials with this? Big! A recent review by the Worldwide Anti-Malarial Resistance Network found that 30% of malarial drugs tested globally failed either chemical or packaging quality tests. Of these, 39% were fake. Many of the falsified pills were from southern China. Given the global burden of malaria, even if a small percentage of drugs are fake, it will translate into significant and avoidable increases in sickness and death. And to the question, how do you get fake drugs off the market? 
Newton noted that the steps that have been taken so far are woefully inadequate. The World Health Organization estimated that 30% of countries have effectively no drug regulation, and many of them have endemic malaria. Noting that without functioning regulatory authorities, most interventions are doomed. To improve the quality of our medicine supply, we need much more international political will backed by investment. And the major Chinese push to be a more of an economic factor in Africa is related to this story, which was that apparently Chinese officials and business people used a state trip by President Xi Jinping and other high-level visits to smuggle ivory out of Tanzania. That's according to an environmental watchdog group. China is, in fact, the world's largest importer of smuggled tusks. And Tanzania is, unfortunately, the largest source of poached ivory. And this really makes me sad. Poaching in Tanzania alone has killed half of the country's elephants in the past five years. The Economist noted that across Africa, the illegal slaughter of elephants is accelerating at such a pace. Recent estimates put the number killed at 100,000 in just three years, that it is threatening to exterminate whole populations. And yes, the worst of this butchery is taking place in Tanzania, the biggest source of illegal ivory. Every third poached elephant in Africa dies on the watch of Tanzania's president, Jakaya Kikwete. His government has made some efforts to fight poaching over the past year. Among these is a plan to destroy the country's ivory stockpiles of 112 tons, worth $50 million, rather than sell it off. You know, we've talked about this before in the program. Does that actually make sense? Rather than flood the market and depress the price, get rid of all that ivory, making the killing of more elephants that much more profitable? Doesn't seem to make sense to us. Of course, then again, you have to ask the question, are they really destroying it? And we suspect not. Anyway, one reason I made a contribution to stop those roads going into the Serengeti, which I mentioned at the top of the program, is that while on a trip there, a couple decades ago, I managed to see a wild herd of elephants moving across the plain, and that's just like nothing else you're ever going to see. Because of the rate we're going with the Chinese smuggling of ivory, uh, you may want to get over there sooner rather than later if you want to see it at all. I certainly want to applaud the efforts of Yao Ming, the Chinese basketball player who played in the NBA, for making an effort to, again, among other things, educate the Chinese populace about what's going on with ivory. A lot of Chinese are under the impression that, uh, you know, they can just take off the tusks and they'll grow back. And in case you think they do, well, they, they really don't. Of course, it isn't just the Chinese. They do need the cooperation of corrupt African officials. Which just might give, uh, give an excuse for you to go over to Africa because if tourists are going over there and they want to see elephants, well, it won't do to get rid of the elephants, will it? So I guess, as Rick Steves might say, you might consider this to be travel as a political act. Of course, you would note that money alone apparently is not going to uh, win approval of the Keystone Pipeline because, well, it, it failed at the present time. But it seems certain for passage once the Republicans take over the Senate next year. And therefore, stopping it will depend entirely upon the man in the White House, Barack Obama. Let's, let's hope he does the right thing. So far, the president has appeared to reject arguments that the Keystone XL Pipeline would deliver major benefits to the U.S., pushing back against the assertions that would provide many jobs and lower gasoline prices. I want to thank Ron Cooper for sharing Move On's description of the pipeline, which is, America takes the risk, China gets the oil, the Koch brothers get the money, and America and the world get the pollution. Sounds about right. 
Now, meanwhile, in a country where people are spending $140 million for artwork, the University of California system is uh, now talking about raising tuitions considerably. Now, there was a time when the state spent more money on education than it did on prisons, but that's been flipped around. And the current solution, bringing in people from out of state and out of country because they pay more, is a pretty crappy solution, don't you think? Sacramento Bee notes that at popular campuses such as UCLA and Berkeley, one-third of enrollment is coming from outside of California. They note that a year at UC now averages more than $12,000 without any aid, and that's just, of course, for tuition. With room, board, books, the cost can top $30,000 per year. Of course, the cost of keeping somebody incarcerated in one of our state prisons is, I think, $40,000 a year. We don't have exact numbers on this, but it appears the prison system's got about 173,000 people with 56,000 guards, making like 40,000, 50,000 a year, something like that. Whereas uh, we've got 234,000 students and 19,000 faculty at the University of California. If you have some data on this, don't feel shy about sharing us. Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We've got so much more on this topic of money and its craziness, but... Um, Let's close it with some comedy relief. Yes, it appears that various financial advising companies are currently using robots to advise people. Well, not exactly R2-D2, but computer algorithms are being offered by firms like Wealthfront, Betterment, and Future Advisor. According to Reuters.com, advise more quickly and inexpensively than flesh-and-blood advisors. Yes, we recommend you put $10,000 down on United Hotcake Preferred. <laughs> Here's the part I like best. And although these startups manage just $5 billion among investors, which is a tiny fraction of that uh, market, major firms are noticing. Fidelity and Charles Schwab have both recently announced they too will offer low-cost or free automated financial advice to compete. And in a rare moment of sanity, even the Wall Street Journal is voicing objections to this. Scott Spiker writing there said that the said the most important financial issue facing most American families today isn't the need for faster or cheaper ways to invest their savings. It's that they do not save and invest in any meaningful way that cannot be solved with automated planning tools. Robots can't offer coaching, for instance, on how to ignore the lures of consumerism, the new car, the big screen TV, the daily latte, until that happens, robo-advisors won't be that helpful in improving financial security for many Americans. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's come back and talk with San Francisco attorney and activist Bill Simpich about some of the curious events of November 22, 1963. Money, 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 money. If you happen to be rich and you feel like tonight's entertainment, you can pay for a gay escape. If you happen to be rich and alone and you need the companion, you can ring for the maid. If you happen to be rich and you find you're a left for your lover, on your moan and you're wrong quite a lot, you can take it on to Jean Cola Cup and begin to recover on your 14 car yacht. Money makes a world go around, a world go around, so world go around. Money makes a go around, all that we both are sure.